With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Focused on the facts, the Aussie Cossack on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to the Aussie Cossack Show, Saturday Night Live with you, broadcasting from the Russian consulate. Uh, what an interesting topic to talk about, the Russian presidential elections in 2024. Uh, about four months away, they're happening on March the 17th. I'm sure we'll get a lot more uh, interest and action as we approach uh, that date on that topic. And uh, something which the world should be very closely looking at because it affects a lot of things, whether Putin stays or whether Putin leaves, it's going to affect the world. Uh, I think Putin should stay. You're welcome to give me a call and disagree. If you disagree with that thesis, 1-800-670-310. One lady in Moscow who we've had previously on this show for a few weeks in a row, I find it very uh, interesting speaking with her. Her name is Natasha Quirk. She's a teacher from uh, Brisbane, from Australia. She was born in Australia and she fled uh, the lockdowns, she fled the mandates under the Scott Morrison government. And she, as a refugee, you could say, from Australia, moved to Russia, moved to Moscow, where she's enjoying life. And uh, if you're a regular listener, you would have heard already a few times our conversations with her. Uh, Natasha uh, joins us now live from Moscow. Welcome back to the Aussie Cossack Show, Natasha. Ah, Dobrovitsa, Simeon, or good evening. <laughs> good evening. Your Russian is better. excellent. Excellent. How is your Russian, by the way? Have you got used to speaking in Russian? Not at all. Not at all. I'm using the local um, app called Yandex Translator on a daily basis in my interactions with the general community, even parents that come into school if we can't find a translator. But it's an amazing app and it's yeah, saved my um, backside, I think, already many times. Um, but no, I intend, my husband just arrived uh, in, in Moscow on Wednesday night, finally, and I've been using him as the excuse. I've been waiting for him to arrive so we can both start learning together and practice together, go to lessons. So your husband arrived from Australia to Moscow? Yeah, finally. He's been over there since I left in August, just tying up loose ends and um, sorting out our, our sons and making sure they were okay before he left. And uh, he finally arrived, touched down at nine o'clock Wednesday evening. So how long have you spent in Moscow without your Australian husband? I've uh, been here since the 21st of August. So he arrived on the 22nd of November. So what's that, three months just about? Fantastic. And you would have heard our previous segment uh, on TNT Radio live tonight. We were talking to a Crimean political scientist and speculating about the upcoming Russian presidential election. Uh, first question I want to ask you, as an Australian who's moved to Moscow, uh, will you be voting in the election? Do you have a Russian passport? I do not, uh, but I wish I could because I know who I'd be voting for, fingers and toes. And who is that? <laughs> um, our- Oh, well, you know, as you wanted to call him, Tsar Putin, <laughs> but President Putin all the way. I mean, I think his popularity is sitting at about 80% anyway, so I think he's a, you know, he's already won in my eyes. Well, Western uh, observers often criticise those types of statistics as being uh, uh, untrue or in- inaccurate. Uh, you live in Moscow, you're an Australian, you've got no reason to give us a fake news or false information based on your interactions and your observations uh, do you think that those numbers uh, those high poll numbers that Putin is getting 78 or 79 80 percent 
approval ratings is does, does that sound accurate to you it does um i obviously uh talking politics here is something we avoid um for obvious reasons uh but the general feel and vibe is that definitely people are very happy and satisfied with the way he's turned this country around uh and you know the economy the um, infrastructure the opportunities that he's cre helped create uh and people who know the truth about the war um definitely i believe those stats are correct and what would you say is the truth about the war in your opinion uh well from what i know and what i've researched and the, um just the people on the ground that um have been here longer than me some Aussies, some from the UK, from South Africa, we all, you know, agree. That's one thing we do agree on is the US has funded it and that um, generally what I believe and my opinion is that he was going in to try and shut down the biolabs, shut down, you know, the trafficking that's rampant in the Ukraine and the money laundering that takes place between the US and the Ukraine and clean it all up and um, unfortunately, you know, that's not how the West has seen it, thanks to the mainstream media, as we know. That's a very good answer. Uh, I, I'm sure the uh, Russian administration will uh, issue you with an extra ration of borscht this week <laughs> for being so uh, astute. At my door. <laughs> Lucky I'm registered here. That's uh, one of the really important things. You have to be registered um, in Russia, as you, know, you get about seven days once you land to get registered. So lucky I am. If they're looking for me, they'll find me where I've said I am. Well, we're, we're joking about this, but do you genuinely ever have any concerns uh, in in regards to your safety, security? Uh, when we talk about the uh, Russian stereotypes of KGB on every corner, <laughs> not at all. It's actually these one of the safest cities that you could be in in the world. Um, the I think it's due to well, it's a you know the the culture is a it is a police state. Let's tell the truth. Um, due to you know where Russia's been in the past and um, how pe people perceive um, the country and how they need to behave. Uh, so for example, I go into a shop. One thing I would never do in Australia is leave my handbag on the seat while I'm trying on shoes on the other side of the store. I do that here. It does not matter. You just know that your you, you, you know belongings are safe. Um, you don't hear, you don't see. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is some crime somewhere. But I am walking the streets. Moscow never sleeps. You can walk the streets all night and feel as safe as anything. It's amazing uh, the feeling you get knowing that. Um, I don't feel you know hesitant or worried at all about my safety and security here. Yeah, there's a, there's a song, Moscow Never Sleeps, comes to mind when you said that. But you're right. I mean, you can go at any time of the evening, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, you can go into a restaurant and it'll be full of people. Yeah, amazing. I know. So, I mean, Brisbane's obviously still got that almost country feel, a big country town feel when it comes to finding a restaurant that, you know, the kitchen's open after 8 p.m. at night and you can get a meal when you want. But here, as you said, I often eat late because I go out for uh, physiotherapy appointments at night after work. Um, that's the other thing, the medical system. But, you know, I've got all my medical appointments normally that I have had because I've had a, an issue with my knees um, are at uh, in the evening, uh, 8.30, 9 o'clock I'll be doing physio. And after that um, I'll go and have a meal somewhere because I always um, try and 
reward my beautiful friend that I was mentioning in my last interview, Anastasia, my tour guide that I met when I first landed. We've become really great friends and she's a translator for me at my medical appointments. So I always try and take her for a meal and we'll be eating and sitting in the restaurant still being offered dessert at 10.30. We'll probably leave at 11, go on and get the train and by the time I get back, it's 11.30, 11.45 and everybody, it's still a buzz with people. A beautiful feeling, actually. You yeah, never feel thing, lonely. One thing that struck me in Moscow is the fact that you can even go to a bank and you can uh, access banking services, you know, at four yeah. o'clock in the morning. It's outrageous. It is. It is. Exactly. You can go to the My um, Documents centres where a, the locals spend a lot of their time, you know, paying their different bills and things. They're open seven days a week until I think it's nine at night. So you can do business at nine o'clock at night, paying a, a whatever it is, a rates bill. I don't know what the bills are, but I know that they, you know, go there for just about every personal, um, you know, um, bill that they have to pay uh, regarding their, you know, assets or their, um, I don't know, even the birth of a child. That's where you go once you've had a baby. So it's my documents and uh, they've got them scattered all around the city. And there's one about five doors down from me. And it's always got people coming in and out. Yeah, every time. It doesn't matter what time of the day or night. Crazy. Amazing. And how's your career going as a teacher in Moscow? Tell us about uh, uh, your day-to-day -day activities working as a teacher. Oh, wow. How long have you got? <laughs> Very different. Uh, being in an international school privately owned by um, a Russian a board of Russians, um, full of Russian teachers and expats and... Uh, it's a very interesting environment. It's I've fallen into a position in the secondary role teaching English to it's a Cambridge International um, uh, program that we we run there, and I have also become the pastoral care leader and uh, a phase leader for secondary. So all of a sudden, here I was thinking I was just going to be an English teacher teaching you know high school from year seven to uh, eleven. And they, the new boss had arrived from Malaysia, actually. He's a UK guy. He's managed international schools for 22 years. He's got an amazing um, profile background. He actually offered me the pastoral care role because his excuse was um, that, well, firstly, you're fully qualified with a couple of degrees. That's a good tick. Um, and he said, you're really calm and I like the way you don't react because you're from Australia. <laughs> Although that was funny. Yeah, so um, anyway, I actually loved pastoral care roles in the past and I, I accepted. So my day-to-day -day role is very different to just a classroom teacher. I sat in two meetings yesterday with parents um, about their student, their, their children's um, behavioural issues and in amongst that I taught my classes as per normal I don't get any time off my teaching role. I've just got to cram it in. Um, we've also got the winter concert coming up, so I've been asked to be um, the project lead for that. And there's reports happening. Um, we report six times a year at our school. It's a bit over the top. I hope the new boss will change that within the next um, academic year, which starts next September uh, or before that year starts. So is, is it primary um, school or high school you're teaching at? Both. both. So it goes from... Recept, uh, recept, uh, sorry, nursery, which is little you know, toddlers, up to year 11. And then there are also um, the school here goes to years, year 13, so there's 12 and 13, but they don't offer that at my school. They, and are, they, are, they, are the Russian kids well-behaved uh, in comparison to children in Brisbane? 
They are very well behaved. Um, they are not sexualized. That's one of the big things I've noticed. Very innocent still in like year 11. My kids in year 11, they'll, you know, giggle at the funniest little things. And you think, well, that's funny. It still gets a giggle from a, you know, a 16 year old. Whereas in Brisbane, they just stare at you. <laughs> but, um, and think, you know, you're a crazy old lady. Go away. But, um, yeah, they're very well behaved. Having so, said so that, on that topic, of- what, what's the, this is very interesting. What's the difference? Uh, is it a difference in the syllabus and the educational approach when it comes to sex education uh, in comparison mm. to Australia? Because many Australian parents uh, complain that uh, mm. the school system, the education system is uh, hyper-sexualizing or over-sexualizing their kids from a young age and introducing all sorts of concepts into the classroom uh, at an age where, you know, kids shouldn't be thinking about that. They should be thinking about playing sport and, you know, enjoying the great outdoors and reading books and so forth. Yeah, that's what you said. Um, yes, there's a big contrast. There is a um, no sexualization, no um, discussion about any of the agendas that we're aware of in the West within the Russian curriculum. It just doesn't, it's something that they leave up to parents and certainly it will come up at times. That's one of the meetings yesterday I had with one of my Year 7 parents about his son's um, uh sexual talk, uh, which is very unusual and we're, you know, it's very strange. It's the first time I've encountered it. Um, so, of course, red, red flag, where is he hearing it, where is he seeing it, um, et cetera, but very strict on internet access and very censored over here with what's what's um, allowed to be, you know, shown. Um, there's a lot of uh, censorship in that area because they just don't want the minds being poisoned. Of course, we know they've got VPNs, which they can skirt around the back, of course, with um, anyone can. Most of the homes, I'd say, have VPNs, um, but the parents are still really strict on what their, the content of their, um, you know, what the content is that their kids are watching. But in the school, we just don't hear it, just don't see it 99% of the time. It's really refreshing. Uh, we don't have issues with boys towards girls and inappropriateness. It just doesn't happen. Uh, and it's it's really great as a teacher, I've got to tell you, most of the time you don't, you're not dealing with that. You're actually able to teach um, instead of managing all the other stuff that you well, encounter. Look, that's one, of the, uh, that's one of the major reasons why many Western parents would want to take their children out of Australian schools or out of Western schools and enroll them into Russian schools because at least they can be rest assured and have the peace of mind that while they're at work, while their children are at school, their children are not being indoctrinated or poisoned with all sorts of nasty uh, woke ideology mm. like it goes on in Australia at the moment. I think Australia is facing you know, a pandemic of uh, indoctrination of children. They're bringing up a whole new generation. Uh, there was an article in The Guardian last week saying that 30% of young people now identify as uh, some other mm. uh, gender or sexual promiscuity uh, than uh, they would normally in a normal circumstance. And that's a result of uh, a coordinated, well-thought-out, organised uh, education campaign, uh, which is government-funded. And it's a result of the fact that these woke types, when you've got the Greens and the Labor in power in Australia, uh, they are involved in those uh, promiscuous activities themselves, and they seek to indoctrinate a whole generation of children uh, to be like uh, they are, right? They don't mm. appreciate the fact that kids should be unmolested and be able to uh, grow up normally without any of these external influences 
these inappropriate external influences. Uh, so what would you say to Australian parents uh, watching tonight um, about uh, mm. the difference between the education well, system, having been a teacher in the Queensland mm. Education Department and now you're working in Moscow? Mm. Well, I'd say that definitely it's, there's a big argument there for homeschooling our kids in Australia. If you have to stay in Australia, I'd be, I would have, well, I did. I pulled my son out a couple of years ago and um, started homeschooling him. Uh, but I would say that, you know, there is a definite difference and that there is a really big reason and a good case for parents to be constantly challenging the schools in which their students are at, over, their children are at over there on what is included in the curriculum and having, um, you know, please explain. I know Alex Antic raised that flag a couple of, I think it was a year and a half, two years ago now. He, you know, he was really big into um, scrutinising the curriculum and, and bringing it to people's attention. But, you know, people don't watch him. A lot of people aren't watching independent media. They're not seeing Alex Antic. They're not seeing people like that bring it to their attention. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of parents that are ignorant to what is in the curriculum and they don't even know what's being taught to their student, their children over there. Over here, you don't have to even worry. It doesn't happen. It, it's not allowed. Um, even, you know, Russia has just implemented a new um, or passed a new bill making trans the transgender agenda an actual, um, I think it's a form of terrorism they've described it. I think I sent, I actually sent that to you, Simeon. I don't know if you saw it. I haven't got it in front of me, but it's a huge stand that they've taken. It's amazing. It's, it's great um, because that's one of the big things that's happening, as you said. Kids are identifying, um, a lot of kids are identifying as all of these other crazy um, genders that, uh, how many are there? I can't think. There's hundreds of genders apparently. Well, it comes come down to the with. fact that if people uh, think they have the right to be abnormal, well, they should surely accept that other people have the right to be normal. Uh, we'll continue this conversation with Natalia, sorry, sorry, I say Natasha Quirk, <laughs> who's a teacher uh, from Brisbane, Australia, moved as a refugee to Russia during the lockdowns under the Palaszczuk regime. Uh, we'll be back with more after this break on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Jeremy Nell and Germ Warfare. I feel like they've hijacked some words that have meaning, sustainable and development, because now if I use the word sustainable, I feel like I'm swearing. When you go onto the United Nations website, so if you go and look at uh, their, their documentation, for example, around Agenda, Agenda 2030, what you get is the kind of glossy brochure image of sustainable development. And really, when you look through that public-facing brochure, I think it's probably probably a reasonable description of it, of sustainable development, that's all you get. You, you just get the sound bites and you just get the claims about how wonderful it is going to be. The UN states that the agenda is an agenda for transformation of the world, most perhaps acutely its economy, its industrial processes, and perhaps something that is often overlooked, us, our societies, and us as individuals. We are to be transformed as well. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Chief Division Council and DOJ have approved a no-knock breach we want the subject to be on display, doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? 
government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I going to get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at. And then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. Today's News Talk Radio. Now we're talking. TNT. Natasha Quirk from Moscow, uh, a teacher who has... uh, the experience of both education systems and she maintains that she prefers the russian system over the australian system and as a disclaimer no natasha is not russian but she's got a lovely russian name natasha is a, a descendant of uh british settlers who came to australia in the 1800s on uh, sailing ships so she's um about as true blue australian as you can get but uh, she lives in moscow she's moved there and uh want to thank her uh, for joining us uh, Natasha, I uh, will invite you back as a regular guest. I want to hear from your husband also, who's just joined you in Moscow to see how you're going. Many people in Australia, uh, I know for a fact, uh, are interested and have considered uh, making the move to Russia. And if you're listening, you're wondering how you can uh, move to Russia if you're interested, I suggest heading out to www.movingtorussia.ru. Natasha, what's your suggestion uh, before we go to those people who have been listening tonight and have been listening to your example uh, moved over to Russia and loving life. Mm, absolutely, what you said. I was going to recommend uh, it's Tima. That's uh, the fellow that um, hosts that website. He's an immigration lawyer, and you first put him in touch with your listeners, Simeon. And that, and I've had uh, my husband and I have met him twice online when we were thinking about moving to Russia. So I can highly recommend him and his site as a starting point. Start doing some investigations. Look at the different visas that you can get to get into this wonderful country because there are a number of what access points through via a different you know different types of visas so start there fantastic well thank you very much uh, natasha uh, for joining us today we're going to stay uh, on the australian topic but head back to australia to another uh, australian of pro-russian convictions sean ambrose is uh, a veteran of the australian defense force who served and i believe it was the 49th battalion is that correct sean uh, uh, no, Simeon, um, not not quite correct. Uh, very close, though. The 9th Battalion of the 9th Battalion. Brigade. So what's the link between the 9th Battalion and the 49th? Uh, well, it started They it started off as the 9th Battalion, and then there was kind of a split, and the 49th Battalion became the training battalion. Okay. But uh, throughout the course of history, you know, it, it's been the 9th, the 49th, and back and forth, and you know, so on and so forth. But they're actually sister battalions. Fantastic. So I was almost on the money there with uh, uh, the uh, name of the battalion. Uh, You heard that uh, interview we had there with uh, Natasha Quirk, a Brisbane uh, school teacher who actually moved 
to Russia to escape the wokeism, the mandates and the lockdowns. And she's there and she's loving life. So uh, what do you make of uh, that position? Have you ever yourself considered or thought about moving to Russia? Simeon, Russia, Russia, Russia is looking very, um, um, what's, what's the word? Lucrative. Not, not lucrative, um, promising, I guess, you know, like, um, I mean, Australia's just gone to hell. Australia's just going to hell in a, in a basket, you know, the rest of the West with it. And yet in Russia, you know, traditional family values, you know, there are good moral people. Um, you know, Christianity, there's none of this LGBT rubbish, you know. Um, kids aren't being indoctrinated. And, you know, well, you, well, you know well, the kids are learning good things, you know, like um, whereas here in Australia, I mean, it's just disgraceful. The kids in Russia are learning how to take apart Kalashnikovs uh, within the 49 seconds. I always am very proud of my wife, Mrs. Kozak, who in, uh, I think it was at the age of uh, 11, was able to take apart a AK-47 and put it back together again in 51 seconds, I believe it was, uh, if I'm not um, mistaken. That's pretty good. I mean, I couldn't take apart a Kalashnikov, but I'm a 33-year-old man. Yeah, wait till you learn to start doing them blindfolded. You know, and, and I'm sure that there are kids in Russia that are, are doing them blindfolded as well, you know, and, and the Tokarov pistol, you know. Uh, well, I'm sure majority of uh, parents out there would rather their children uh, learn how to uh, safely deal with uh, weapons uh, in a safe, controlled manner uh, than uh, all sorts of alphabet soup, gender equality nonsense. And again, in saying that, uh, Sean, and you know, you may want to clarify this position, but I'm pretty sure the general position uh, from the conservatives in Australia is that no one really cares. In fact, that's the word. No one cares what people do behind closed doors. See, those people think that someone cares, but unfortunately for them, no one actually cares. We are only opposed to the concept of this being everywhere, on every street corner, on every TV station, uh, and all over media, social media, and so forth, when it's in uh, the brains and the minds of children and giving children the unfair uh, disadvantage of not being able to naturally grow up and flourish as a normal boy or normal girl to make their own choices in life. You know, these same people, these same people who are pushing indoctrination and sexualization of children are the same people who will say, no, no, you shouldn't baptize kids. You should wait until they're old enough to make their own choice, right? That's their argument against uh, Christianity and baptism and so forth from a young age. But where it comes to indoctrination and teaching kids to switch genders at the age of six or seven, oh, then it's okay. Give the kids uh, no choice because when they're giving them this indoctrination, they're actually manipulating children. You know, grooming children is an offence. And the, the, the organisation which is uh, the biggest offender is, in fact, the Department of Education. They have a lot to answer for, Simeon, uh, the Department of Education. Um, quite frankly, they need to be, you know, they need to have the broom put through the department and uh, a number a number of all those departmental heads just need to be sacked, you know. Absolutely. Sean, you're, you're a veteran of the Australian Defence Force. You speak to veterans and uh, mingle and mix with them. What's the view of veterans about what's going on uh, in this country in terms of uh, indoctrination, in, in the inappropriate indoctrination of children? Rather than teach kids about uh, Anzac Day, uh, respecting their forefathers and their elders and the history of Australia, they're being taught all sorts of garbage. What are the veterans saying? Oh, they're, they're just absolutely disgusted, you know. And so, Simeon, I'm, I'm active in the RSL. 
the local RSL and the veterans within the RSL, they're just, it's just appalling, you know, just, they're just disgusted with it all, you know. Um, and they know, they know exactly what's going on. So I've got some contacts in the intelligence community, you know, they're part of the intelligence unit and um, they're just absolutely appalled by what's going on. It's, um, and, and they can see, you know, so it's not just veterans that can see, like everyone else can see, but the moment you push back, you know, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you know, you're whatever else they want to call you. Um, interestingly, Simeon, uh, Simeon, I went, I was in Sydney today. My wife took me into Sydney for the uh, the Ramsey's exhibition. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, keep going. The, the exhibition. <laughs> so, yeah, I was at the, uh, my wife took me in for the Ramsey's exhibition and uh, standing in line and across from me, and he, he recognised me and I recognised him. I am certain it was Tom Tanuki. Tom who's, Tanuki. Tom, who's Tom Tanuki? I've never heard of him. Uh, he's he's one of the gatekeepers for the Palestinian um, the Palestinian resistance here in Sydney. And um, he's preventing, uh, you know, I guess you'd say, you know, the freedom fighters from getting involved with the Palestinian, you know, uh, building, you know, some unity in regard to the Palestinian issue. Um, uh, so this is this is, uh, in your opinion, one of those uh, organisers of, of a left sort of uh, leftist uh, persuasion who are trying to monopolise the pro-Palestine uh, movement and rallies and protests uh, in Australia, which are, of course, at record numbers, uh, numbers not seen on the streets since the days of the lockdowns. And these uh, left activists uh, are afraid or they're worried about uh, any other uh, influences supporting the palestinians and they seem to want to monopolize uh the rallies uh, to the detriment of course of the palestinian movement because if you if they genuinely cared about the palestinians and about speaking up for their plight they wouldn't pick and choose which uh, parts of the political specter are coming to the aid of the palestinians but what difference does it make if the anti-vaxxers or the right or the conservatives are happy to stick up for the palestinians Surely people like Tom Tanuki uh, would uh, accept that this is not about Tom, this is not about the Socialist Alliance, this is not about the Greens, this is not about uh, any of these other uh, dubious, uh, you know, student leftist uh, organisations or uni groups. This is about the death of tens of thousands of Palestinians. And I'm sure the dying children and the dying people in the rubble in Palestine and Gaza don't really mind where they get support from, whether it's from the left and the right. Yeah, abs absolutely. You know, uh, the most important the most important aspect of all of this, Simeon, is that, you know, we support the Palestinian people and we build a united front and provide the Palestinian people with the support. It doesn't matter where the support comes from, you know, whether it's left or right or it's midfield or, you know, Wherever the support is coming from is irrelevant. The the issue that matters is that we get the support that they need, you know. But it seems to be that there are gatekeepers and there are people there that want to sell badges and books and you know wave the banner of the socialist alliance and the green left. You know, I think it's just really tragic. So what did you say to Tom when you met him in line at the Rams this uh, <laughs> uh, exhibition? Well, well, Simeon, I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to intrude. He he looked. Um, he looked as if he was um, a little bit intimate. He was on a mandate. And, and, and 
<laughs> so, 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 and I was with my wife, of course, and my family. So I wasn't going to say, "Hey, let's have a conversation about Palestine." But uh, yeah, he he was there, and and it was just it was just a little uh, just a little bizarre that you know he was standing across from me. Yeah, tell us about the Ramses uh, exhibition happening in Sydney now. Yeah, so it's it's actually um, I'm not sure how long it's running for, but it, but I, I can tell you it's it's packed out. So my wife had to buy uh, bought the tickets. It was actually my Father's Day present, um, a, a little belated. But um, so they've brought out some artifacts from from you know that belong to Ramses. So there's you know there's golden masks, there's daggers, there's there's all kinds of you know there's the uh, the katush, you know there's uh, you know the the um, what do they call them? You know, like the coffin type thing. I just forget what they call it. The sarcophagus. The sarcophagus. <laughs> Thank you, Simi. But um, it's it was actually quite. It was actually quite interesting. It was. It's well worth going along to and having a look. Um, something interesting about um, the Pharaoh Ramses is that um, when he fought the Hittites, um, he was he actually foiled a Hittite ambush. Um, from the battle with the Hittites, seventeen years later, he developed a peace treaty, and that peace treaty is still it's the basis for all peace treaties throughout the world today. And it dates back to Ramses. Speaking of peace treaties, what's uh, your prediction on the next move uh, in Israel Gaza? Do you think this latest uh, ceasefire that they've announced uh, will hold up or the hostilities will resume? Uh, Simeon, most definitely, I, I think, you know, like we all need to be praying that it does hold up. Um, most definitely, you know, Israel, Israel need to be brought to the table and to sit down and you know acknowledge the Palestinian people, um, I really hope it does hold up. But um, just thinking back on some of the crimes that the you know the Israelis have committed over the past decades, I'm I'm not I'm not overly confident. I think we I think we're going to need to see some other players involved, such as Russia and uh, China, of course. What do, what do you expect Russia to do? If you had a magic wand, what would you want Russia to do in this situation regarding uh, Israel Palestine? Apply sanctions, trade sanctions against Israel. Bring them to the table. Bring them to heel. Um, I mean, this could have this could have been um, ended. You know, this this could have been ended in its infancy had they have applied trade sanctions from the onset. You know, and I'm, I'm not talking. I'm not singling Russia out here, but the um, you, you know, there's trade unions around the world. Well, well, don't you think before Russia uh, needs to step in, you've got countries like Qatar. Who are so vocal in their support for Palestine, they could very, very easily, a country like Qatar could very easily simply turn off the gas. And not only that would affect Israel, that would affect Israel's allies, the main countries in the West who are propagating uh, Israel's uh, uh, offensive against Gaza. And Qatar is the number one gas supplier in the world. By turning off the gas, gas prices will skyrocket, will go through the roof. And that will also benefit Russia very, very significantly because it'll put Europe in a very precarious uh, position where Europe, European Union, Germany uh, in particular, uh, who have heavily reliant on Russian gas uh, as winter is now coming up in Europe, it's already beginning, they would have to uh, you know, go to the Russians and ask for gas. And the Russians, of course, would say, well, <clears throat> we can give you gas, stop supplying weapons to Zelensky. So it's all interconnected, but it starts with Qatar. 
I think that's a very good point, Simeon. You know, I think that's I think that's the most pertinent point you've just made. You know, you're right. Yeah, turn off the turn off the gas. You know, winter's coming. Winter's coming. There's, you know, it, it wouldn't be uh, it, w- it wouldn't be too pleasant if there's no, you know when there's no gas and you're freezing to death. Um, but no, Israel. You know, Qatar do need. You're, you're absolutely right. Qatar do need to be stepping up and, and applying some pressure here on Israel. Well, in general, the Arab countries, in my opinion, uh, have been very slow off the mark. They've been very vocal and doing doing you know serious speeches and having conferences and even uh, presidents like uh, Erdogan of Turkey, uh, or should I say Turkey? Yeah, as it's now called, have been very vocal. Uh, you know, saying all these uh, things from uh, high places. But what's actually happening on the ground? We don't see really any serious support. Uh, or any military support, at least, uh, or any pressure on Israel from those Arab countries who could, uh, well, when I mean Arab, I include in that Middle Eastern countries. I'm sure the Turkish don't consider themselves as Arabs. Uh, but do you agree that the, they should be the ones speaking up and well, helping well, Palestine? Not, I mean, what, Russia and China can't really get in there when you've got Palestine, Israel, surrounded by all of these other countries like Jordan, uh, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia. Where are all they? Where are all those countries? Well, Simeon, it's it's rather interesting. I'm I'm not sure if you've seen Netanyahu's most recent address to the United Nations, um, where Netanyahu outlines the construction of the Ben Gurion Canal. And well, hold that thought, hold that thought. We'll get back to the Ben Gurion Canal situation, something that I really want to uh, hear about. Uh, stay with us. We'll be back uh, after this break uh, with uh, the latest intel on the Ben Gurion Canal scenario. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The biggest weather news is what is about to happen in Europe. I saw another one of those pictures of Greta Thunberg protesting today. I guess today is like week 300 or something of the climate strike where kids are allowed to be truant and, uh, you know, to protest climate. But she was all bundled up and I was like, well, wait a minute, looks awfully cold over there. And uh, were there fossil fuels used in the making of those clothes that you have on? But I want to get serious about this. The fact that we are getting such a cold blast that is coming in and this was telegraphed with those big storms and the reason you see what's going on in the weather today is because all the weathermen start screaming and yelling about climate change instead of understanding the same thing happened in 2009 and they went into the deep freeze over there. But it's a serious situation. You know why? Well, first of all, the implications of that is that the United States is going to get very cold. Now, it's cold right now, but I'm talking about what could be really cold weather, severe cold, in the month of January. Because there's probably going to be a lot of snow in the United States during the month of December, especially after the 20th. So what we saw in 2009, 2010 was Europe got it in 2009 in December. And then the U.S. had their famous snowmageddon. And that occurred later in January and February. It'd be a little bit earlier this year, probably, looking at the overall pattern. But think about this. You're going to get that grid in Europe tested now. And especially Germany. Germany looks like ground zero for the worst weather, the most snow, it's going to be a little bit colder relative to averages up where Greta lives. But Germany is going to be in bad shape here in the next 10 to 20 days. But again, then you have to worry about the rest of the winter. You see what I'm saying? So we're going to have some things push come to shove, so to speak, coming up here over the next couple of weeks. And in fact, the next couple of months, because unlike last winter, 
don't think this is backing off this year. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bustardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. I didn't think I'd survive. But I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. You're listening to The Ozzy Cossack on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, allegations uh, afloat at Israel. Some people claiming that uh, the real reason for the conflict in Gaza is the plans to build uh, a canal, a canal to challenge the Suez Canal. Now, this may be a conspiracy theorist, this may be fake news, but uh, either way, let's hear uh, the thesis that uh, Sean Ambrose uh, wants to bring about the Ben Gurion Canal. Uh, what is the Ben Gurion Canal? Is it a real thing? And do you think uh, there's any uh, background to it to make this a credible allegation? Sean. Uh, Simeon, it's uh, it's very real. Netanyahu has addressed uh, the United Nations. That happened in September. Anyone can Google this, YouTube it. It's all there. I mean, um, as he spoke, there was um, the Saudi king was there and he was looking very sheepish. Um, and you may recall there was a photo of uh, Donald Trump, uh, the president of Egypt, and the Saudi king taken some time ago. A bit of a odd photo in red. There was a, that, was, that photo was actually depicted in a, um, a few years back in The Simpsons as well. So this is all very well. Uh, this is all very real. The Arab nations have thrown the Palestinians to the wolves, and they're conspiring with Israel to build this canal. Um, sounds sounds very very uh, very bad if it's true, and that would be unfortunate if the Arab nations have thrown uh, the Palestinians under the bus. Sean, we'll keep an eye on this story. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. We can't confirm or deny this information yet, uh, but stay tuned, and we'll uh, we'll endeavour to investigate the Ben Gurion. Uh, alleged canal project uh, in the future. Sean, thanks for joining us. Staying now in Australia to another freedom fighter uh, on the streets of uh, Australia. Luke Moore is one person who has been in the news this week, all over the mainstream media. And I want to start by congratulating Luke Moore. Congratulations to you. Uh, you've had a big win this week in the courts. Uh, Constable Daniel Keneally has been found guilty uh, of uh, fabricating evidence, effectively uh, dishonestly putting forward a, a recording which did not exist where he alleged that you threatened him as a police officer and you, Luke, were put into jail for three weeks. Am I right? Yeah, that's correct, Simeon. Thank you and thanks for having us here. Well, congratulations. It must feel great to finally have uh, your day in court, have your name cleared. Uh, what, what what emotions uh, were going through your head uh, when the uh, judge was reading out uh, uh, their decision? 
Oh, mate, well, I have to say it was a long time coming. It, it took nearly three years to to get this far, and he's already said he's lodging an appeal, so it's likely to be another six or 12 months before we have a, a real result. So I um, I wasn't there. I wasn't there when they read out the judgment. I didn't attend. Um, I was sort of a bit, bit annoyed about the whole process and everything, the fact that the DPP chose the lowest charge, and then they dropped me as a witness, which I found highly suspicious. They didn't want me to appear before the judge, so the judge didn't get to hear how I felt about the situation or anything like that. Um, but but overall, like it was a pleasant surprise that he got convicted. I, I actually had my doubts whether he'd go down for it or not. Just to remind our listeners, uh, Daniel Keneally, constable of Newtown Police Station, was working the night shift on the 20, uh, 2021 in February. And you, Luke Moore, rang the police station to uh, lodge a complaint about police strip searches. Uh, Constable Keneally uh, then fabricated a statement where he alleged uh, falsely that you made threats to kill him, saying uh, he wanted him off the planet, saying he was dead and as good as gone. Now, you never said these things, did you, Luke? No, I, not only did I not say the things Daniel said I did, but he made up that we had a two-way conversation where he said something, I said something, he said something, I said something, and that never occurred. So he didn't just put words in my mouth, he put words in his own mouth. And it all backfired because it was funny that his supervisor actually took notes from that night, and part of the reason he got done, I believe, is because of the notes the supervisor took. So his supervisor broke rank and uh, decided to throw him under the bus. Well, congratulations. Well done to his supervisor. Is that, was that what happened? Yeah, well, no, not necessarily. I don't think the supervisor broke ranks, but he took, he made notebook entries on the night and that was subsequently used to show when Daniel formed the intent. I'll, I'll try to explain quickly to see if this makes sense. So I was on the phone to Keneally. I rang up about 8 o'clock. I was speaking to him. After a couple of minutes, he's gone into his, and this came out at trial. This was based on Keneally's own evidence and the supervisor's evidence. A couple of minutes into the phone call, Keneally put the phone down, left and went to his supervisor and said, there's a guy on the phone ranting about strip searches from Goulburn and what should I do? And his supervisor told him to go back, tell me to call Goulburn Police Station and complain to them. Rather than doing that, Keneally's come back, not listened to me and looked at the website and then gone back to his supervisor and said, oh, he just said he was going to kill this police officer. Interestingly, his supervisor actually started asking probing questions. He said, what do you mean, you know, he said that. And um, Daniel Keneally elaborated and that's where you know, he made up this thing. And he originally told his supervisor only minutes after the phone call, where at trial he tried to claim that he didn't make a statement until three hours later, and that's why his memory was affected. But it was all dodgy. Well, there you go. So the mainstream media has been um, uh, all over this story. Uh, in general, in general, they were, I would say, a little bit standoffish because I've been monitoring this story in the beginning. But they looked like they've taken uh, your side. Um, 
they detailed uh, the defense, the defense that the uh, Constable Keneally uh, told the court. Now, Constable Keneally uh, claims that he may have inadvertently mixed up Mr. Moore's comments on the website, uh, ISU Police, with his recollection of the phone call. Constable Keneally told the court he was tired and really wasn't coping with things in his job, but maintained he didn't purposefully add material to the statement he knew to be false. However, Mr. Brenda rejected his evidence. I don't accept that's what occurred, the magistrate said. Well, I don't accept that's what occurred, is what the magistrate said. So that's effectively perjury. I mean, that's a that's a bit of a light way. Isn't, well, isn't well, it a that, light way for the That's an interesting thing because not only has he been busted lying about what I said, a judge has effectively found that he was also guilty of lying about that lie. So, you know, I, I don't think in the circumstances they'll bring further charges against him. So what, what, what were the charges in the end? Because initially you were charged with some extremely serious charges, uh, which led to you being uh, locked up uh, for three weeks uh, in jail. Uh, you were charged with using a carriage service to menace and threaten to kill, uh, and you spent three weeks in custody. So when those charges were dropped, I imagine, uh, which is great for you. But what charges in the end were brought against Keneally? Uh, they brought one charge um, in the local court against him and it was fabricate false evidence with intent to mislead a judicial tribunal. What were the, all the other charges that could have been put forward? What were you hoping for? Which well, other they, they charges? Should have just, they should have just brought pervert the course of justice against him and that would have been prosecuted in a higher court and he would have been liable for 14 years. What about uh, knowingly make false statement? Yeah, there would have been. There, there was about 10 different charges that they could have selected from, maybe more, and they chose the one that carried the lowest sentence and they chose to prosecute it in the local court. So, Well, that's, that's what you get when your mum's the next New South Wales Premier reminding our listeners that the mother of this police officer, Daniel Keneally, is in fact Christina Keneally, former New South Wales Premier, uh, and being a Labor uh functionary she obviously has quite strong contacts and connections uh within the new south wales labor government who ultimately oversees the new south wales police force do you think there was uh, uh, a uh, undue influence situation here using uh, mum's connections oh I, I think ab absolutely he was protected because of who his mother is i think any other officer particularly a junior officer like this happened two days after his second anniversary as a police officer, they wouldn't go to this much trouble to protect an ordinary young constable. They just wouldn't. I, I think the fact that because of who his mum is was basically the reason they went so far to try to cover it up. Well, I mean, Mr Keneally, and I don't know, is he, is he referred to now still as a constable or is he just... Mr. Keneally. Well, he well he's still getting paid by the New South Wales taxpayers, so I assume he still has constable before his name. I mean, how on earth is he still a police officer after all this? After you've spent three weeks in jail based on his false statements, and he's still a cop. Well, it's a failure of leadership of Karen Webb because well, the, it, like uh, the commissioner, the police commissioner Karen Webb, it was quite clear from the beginning that she should have sacked him the moment the recording came out. Then she had the opportunity to do it again when he was charged. She didn't do that. Then he got on the stand and even with this whole memory claim that his memory's so bad he can't 
recall a conversation from moments earlier, that should have been enough to get rid of him there and then, even if, if you actually believed him. He admitted out of his own mouth that he can't remember a phone call that happened moments earlier. And if that's the case, you're not capable to be a police officer. And then now he's been convicted and she still hasn't sacked him. It's, it's atrocious. She's the police commissioner. She's meant to step up and deal with these exact issues are what people expect the commissioner to take a firm stance against. Well, Constable Keneally arrived in court on crutches, uh, accompanied by his father, former Mayor Ben Keneally. Not only has good connections on his mother's side, he's also got good connections on the father's side. Uh, the media describes him as being hunched in his seat, looking at the ground, effectively playing the victim, presenting himself as this poor a uh, policeman on crutches who was tired and who didn't recall. I mean, he's playing the victim. When you, in fact, are the one who was stitched up and thrown into jail for three weeks, how does it make you feel, Luke? Uh, look, it's it's ridiculous, and you're exactly right. Daniel is playing the victim, even by running this argument, talking about his memory and that. Like, we all know, like, that's totally unreasonable, and for him to be running that, yeah, it, it annoys me. It, it, it annoys me a lot. His lawyer, Paul McGear, said that Daniel will be appealing the verdict. I just find that bizarre. You've, you've been found guilty on a very, very minor charge in comparison to what you should have been found guilty on. Wouldn't you just cop it on the chin and uh, uh, put yourself out of you know the misery of having to go back to court with more media, with more opportunities uh, and more pressure from the general public, which, uh, which right now we are engaged in, right? We're bringing awareness to this. The more awareness about it, if he's going to appeal it, that means he goes back to square one and he wants to do it all again. What do you make of this uh, uh, indication that they want to appeal the verdict? Well, well, first of all, I have to say from a, a legal standpoint, it was certainly ill-advised of his lawyer to go around announcing an appeal before he's even been sentenced. So he can't appeal anyway until after he's been sentenced. But now they have to go and appear before a judge who they've publicly criticised as being wrong in public. They've gone openly on the news and gone, this judge is wrong, we're appealing the verdict. But they've got to still go and be sentenced before this judge. So it's ludicrous. And as far as any um, sign of remorse or anything like that, there's no clearer sign of lack of remorse than publicly announcing an appeal moments after you've been convicted. Luke, why weren't you in court? during this uh, uh, hearing? Well, I, I was meant to be a witness. I was meant to be the DPP's lead witness, but they dropped me because they didn't want... Yeah, but even if you weren't a witness, you should, why shouldn't why didn't you why didn't you uh, attend? Mate, I, I was over it. I've been dealing with it for three years now, and I honestly didn't think he was going to get convicted. Um, and, and it honestly would have just aggravated me. He was there on the stand saying that he thought I was mentally ill or diseased. That's well, look, you, you, spent, you spent three weeks in jail. Uh, uh, full respect to you. Uh, on behalf of all uh, former and current prisoners who have been stitched up by the system, uh, we know exactly how you feel, uh, Luke, and you deserve to uh, take on uh, this moment, take this win. It's a win to the people, not only it's a win to you. It's a shame that the government has uh, done a half job uh, of uh, prosecuting Daniel Keneally. They're covering for their own. Uh, it's a bloody disgrace, in my opinion. Uh, we'll keep a close eye on this story. Thank you for joining us tonight on Team T Radio. Hopefully the government pays you a few million dollars in compensation, and hopefully that's next. 
Yeah, one can hope. All right, Simeon, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Good on you, mate. Luke Moore, founder of isuperlease.com, the man who was stitched up by disgraced police officer Daniel Keneally. Back after the news with Aussie Kozak Saturday Night Live.